I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dwayne Monroe, a cloud architect, Marxist tech analyst, and internet polemicist focused on directing his almost 20 years of experience in the technology space towards a materialist analysis of the tech industry informed by a mixture of theory and direct experience. In recent years, he has devoted time to dissecting the political economy of what he calls the AI industrial complex. The topic of a blog post and upcoming book called Attack Mannequins. You can follow him at Twitter at Cloud Quistador, that's C-L-O-U-D-Q-U-I-S-T-A-D-O-R, at Cloud Quistador, at Twitter, and visit his website and blog, MonroeLab.net, that's M-O-N-R-O-E-L-A-B.net. Before we get started, I also want to mention that coming up this Sunday, my class, The Unconscious Act, Theories of Repetition in Philosophy and Psychoanalysis, begins at GCAS. The class is being held on the next four Sundays, beginning this Sunday, March 6th, at 12 p.m. New York City time. All classes are live via Zoom, and when you register, you can find in the Google Classroom all of the readings. I've copied them all for you, so they're available there. You don't have to buy any books. And I've recorded four videos. You watch one of each of them before each class, so we can discuss the material presented in the videos as well as in the readings. This Sunday, for example, we're going to be reading Freud and we're going to be talking a little bit more generally about interest in psychoanalysis, questions about Freud, and questions about the field in general just to get acquainted with each other and with the course. Then the following week on March 13th, we're going to be reading a paper that talks about different influences Freud took or had from Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And we're going to talk about different concepts in Freud as well as in Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and see how it all fits together, even though Freud never really acknowledged that this is where he was getting information. It seems pretty obvious given his writing and given the times he lived in. Uh, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer were big influences on culture, and it would be strange for Freud not to have encountered them. Then the following week, on March 20th, we're going to talk about other theories of repetition, being uh, uh, some in Lacan, some in Deleuze, and Alenka Zupanchik's writing about that. And then finally, the fourth week, we're going to be talking on March 27th about the theater and plays and the theater of the internet and the digital realm and how we can kind of see psychoanalytic concepts playing out in the theater, film, digital realm. We're going to be reading some of Simon Critchley's work in that area and as well as Clint Burnham, uh, Does the Internet Have an Unconscious? So definitely come and join us, check it out. You do not have to be a psychoanalyst in formation to take this course. The course is open to anybody that's interested in the topic. Uh, GCAS does have a psychoanalytic certificate program that you can sign up for. And if you'd like to do that, you are welcome to begin your sort of academic year now. Uh, sign up for the, court, the certificate now. And then you have the entire year from this point forward. You don't have to begin the academic year at GCAS in the fall as in most institutions. So that's something really great. You can begin your education at any time. 
they also, even though their fees are really low for education, they also uh, are very good about providing financial assistance um, and letting you get the education you want, uh, really no matter what your finances. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to write me, feel free to contact GCAS directly. Their website is gcascollege.ie, that's G-C-A-S college.ie. And for my class in particular, it's gcascollege.ie forward slash the unconscious act. Uh, it's the with a dash unconscious with a dash act. And you can find links to all of this in the text accompanying this episode as always. Also, as always, this episode is available on YouTube. So if you'd like to access the transcript or watch Dwayne and I in conversation, just go to Japart Films' YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Japart Film. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters I really really appreciate seeing your names there Um, it really helps a lot to feel supported back I think that was a good place to start. I'm really mm-hmm. excited to talk with you because I think about the tech industry a lot and I don't know a lot about it. And I'm always trying to mm-hmm. learn more because mm-hmm. like you said, there's a lot of dis- disinformation out there and everyone needs to be thinking about this and educating themselves. I feel like on politics and on technology because yeah. they're so important and they're pervasive and they don't get questioned enough, especially technology. It reminds me a lot of like, I feel like we're living in a time similar to like the industrial revolution where like mm-hmm. all this, these guys, this group of guys got to like create society and like mine the yes. earth and like no one else really had a say in what was going on. It feels right. like it's kind yeah. of industrial revolution part two, but with tech. Yeah, yeah that, I think that's exactly correct. I mean, so to, I guess, define what my project is in this area, well, just to say who I am. So, um, hi, um, um, Duane Monroe, and I'm a technologist, and, and I've been in the technology field for about 20 years. And um, in that capacity, I've worked uh, with what are called enterprise scale technologies. Uh, first, on premises, and what does that mean? Well, that means within the data centers of uh, large, corp- uh, large corporations. Data centers are essentially um, buildings that warehouse uh, computers high-performance computers and everything that the computers use to communicate with each other, networking equipment and storage equipment and so forth. Um, and I moved my career oh, about a dec- decade ago or so to cloud technologies. So what are cloud technologies? Well, cloud technologies are what I just described, data center um, uh, technologies or um, the concentration of computing power within data centers. But now, rather than a company having to have their own data center, they can rent access to the elements of of, uh, compute, um, storage, and database um, from another provider. Um, The three majors from North America are Microsoft, um, Amazon, and Google. And what my project is, um, is basically an interrogation of what these companies um, are doing um, specifically, but more broadly, what the, what the technology industry is doing um, in relation to power. Because it, my idea is that computation is a form of power. Um, it's actually at the center of capitalist power. It's logistics and command and control. And I find that many people um, on the left and, and other thinkers accept the narrative that is presented by the industry without question. So when someone says, I, we've created an autonomous car, people say, oh, well, I guess you have, rather than, well, wait, have you? And it's my contention that the companies that are doing these things 
they know that they haven't done the things that they've claimed, um, but they are presenting these achievements um, as, as having been accomplished for both business reasons, because it attracts investment, but also um, for propaganda reasons, because it, in order to shape the narrative of what is possible um, in order to have an in influence upon uh, labor power. So anyway, that's, I guess, kind of a, a overview of what I do in, in the space as far as my, I guess you could say polemics um, on technology. And you're working on a book. You want to tell us a little bit about your book? So the book is called Attack Mannequins, uh, AI is Propaganda. And the, um, the subject of the book is how the concept of artificial intelligence um, is being used by um, the tech industry uh, generally to, um, to, as I said, shape um, how we understand um, labor. So for example, um, Amazon, um, um, one of their goals is to create robots within their warehouses so they could replace workers. But creating the kind of robots that they need uh, is not really achievable with current technology. Um, so they present the idea that these things are achievable. And it's my contention that presenting the idea that, that uh, this technology is possible is designed to give labor the impression, to give workers the impression that they can be replaced thereby weakening perceptually your bargaining position. And there are other such examples of, of um, the presentation of technologies that uh, either have not been achieved or cannot be achieved uh, as presented, but the attack vector, so to speak, or the attack target, I should say, is labor. One of them is when um, uh, Professor Jeffrey Hinton uh, mentioned a number of years ago that uh, machine learning was sophisticated enough so that it could replace um, radiologists. Um, and this was you know, just not a true claim. His intention might very well have been sincere. He was a very enthusiastic um, scientist and researcher. However, that, that claim could be used in order to try to, to have uh, an impact upon the, the prospects and, and the, the wages and so forth of radiologists. Now, as it happens, we need even more radiologists because Machine learning cannot replace people, but the presentation of the idea that people can be replaced is, is what I'm saying is a, a propaganda uh, campaign. Um, and I call the tech mannequins because, uh, because these lifeless things um, are being used by capital um, to, to attack us, um, to attack our, our, our position of power, such as it is, because we, we don't have that much power as it is. Yeah, but like you said, it really kind of weakens the, the person's perception of their p position. Of their worth, like yes. It makes them feel they have less autonomy and less agency and yes. yeah, less of a say. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, that, so that's, the, that's the subject of the book. And um, um, I, it's always six months away. I'm sure you know how it is to write a book. But, the, <laughs> but I, 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 do, I do anticipate it being completed by the midpoint of this year. And, um, and then, then we have to get it uh, uh, published. Yeah, so it'll be out probably next year, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that Exciting. Would be the goal. Yeah. I look forward to that. And in the meantime, people have your blog, which is also yes. excellent. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, the blog is titled Computational Impacts. And as the title uh, implies, the 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 purpose of it is to dem or not demonstrate the is to describe um, the uh, the impacts of uh, technology and technology industry on people. So, for example, um, there has been a, pro a proliferation of algorithmic systems, which are known as AI, but which are actually pattern matching um, systems. Um, that's really what we're talking about. Uh, AI is an aspirational term that was coined in the late 1950s at Dartmouth College at a conference by, I think uh, it was Dr. John McCarthy. Um, so well over half a century ago. And um, what we have today are pattern matching systems, everything that, that impresses us so, um, like yeah, Siri and what have you. Uh, these are all pattern matching systems that use a, a, a tremendous amount of computational power and storage um, to achieve their results. But really it's all the stats that you learned in middle school, high school and college or university. 
Um, what I do with the blog is I dissect claims. So for example, um, when a company like uh, Boston Dynamics says, oh, we've invented a robot that can walk and do all these things. So I said, well, let's actually investigate the claims. Let's return to the materiality of the technology to investigate whether the claim in the press release matches what, it can, what is actually happening. And 99.9% .9 of the time that that is in fact not the case. Like you say, oh, we've invented this or we've done that. Um, and I, I see the blog, hopefully uh, the intention is for it to be a resource for people who are not familiar with the technology, um, and, but who want to understand, well, these claims are being made and they sound astounding, but are they true? And who, who is there to tell me whether they are or, or aren't because the tech press is in this way useless because they're just cheerleaders. And of course the companies are going to tell you whatever they want you to believe. So that's the purpose of the blog, yeah. Yeah, no, and that's so important, like you said, because if all the information is just coming from these people who have invented these things, then it's not really uh, information that you can trust. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, they're trying to sell you something, number one, and they're trying to also sell you an idea um, in addition to selling you the actual, the actual stack. And an example of this are companies that claim that they can determine through machine learning or artificial intelligence whether someone is cheating, like the proctoring. Um, platforms that have been vexing um, universities and, and, and colleges and, and even um, high schools um, in which, you know, people are taking tests and then they, they use these algorithmic systems that are supposed to be able to monitor your facial expressions and then determine whether or not you're cheating. This is absurd, of course. <laughs> and it's also dangerous because um, if the idea that such a thing is possible is accepted, then schools will de deploy these technologies. And then these technologies have a negative impact upon people's lives. So you have a couple of things. You have uh, a system that cannot do, I mean, even if it could do what they claimed, it, it would be wrong, but it can't do <laughs> what they claim. Um, and so not only is it wrong, but it's, it's harmful in a, in a way that's multiplied by the fact that it cannot achieve the stated goals. So this is why it's so important to, to, to have like a, to have a skepticism, uh, but an informed skepticism about what's, what's possible um, with various technologies uh, because they do produce harms when they are deployed. Um, like insurance determination systems, benefit determination algorithms. There's so many examples now of this proliferation of these algorithmic systems, you know, that uh, are being marketed as um, worthy of decision-making of replacing people in the decision-making process. And they, they absolutely cannot do it um, and should not be used in that way, but, but they are because it's a labor saver for the, you know, the bureaucracies, the companies um, that replace personnel with these systems. And it also, it's also a way of obscuring cul culpability um, for the harm being done. So, yeah, this this is why I'm so focused on this because I, I think it's it's um, it's having an impact on all of our lives. It starts with the most vulnerable, but these systems always creep out. These you know harm always creeps out in a concentric circles of harm from the most vulnerable to to all but the most powerful uh, who are always excluded, of course. And so we we need to be aware. Yeah, exactly. And you and the environmental impact as well. You recently oh posted a picture of like, what does a cloud or something look like? And it's like yeah. a huge thing of cables. And it's just like, yeah, exactly. Cloud is not it's not a cloud. You know? it, there is no cloud. It's, it's all plastic <laughs> and metal and, you know, silicon and, and power consumption and cooling and um, yeah, just buildings with computers. And it's, it's, there's nothing magical happening. In fact, you mentioned the industrial revolution. It is an industrial process. That's really what, what it is. Um, but the way that we think about it is as if it's different from say the steam engine. Now in details, it's different, but, but um, fundamentally it's the same. It's the same kind of industrial process. You have to mine, you know, min minerals from the earth to actually manufacture, which requires labor and typically exploited labor. Um, to create computers. And then there's of course software, which is our instruction sets, but 
um, it's not magic. It's, it's things that, that can be comprehended uh, if someone takes the time to explain it. But the entire thing is indeed an, an industrial process. And once you understand that, then the sen- you can still be impressed by you know, the achievements of the, of the computer age, but you have a, an appreciation for it that's, that's uh, not that of a small child, but that of an, an informed adult. who's <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not going to worship at the altar of this. I, I, I just have to understand what's going on because it has an impact. Yeah, exactly. And not just be excited by the, the short term, quote unquote, benefits, but also yeah. look at what's going on long term. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Yeah. And you also talk about like materialism and technology. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So my approach to the technology industry is based in um, a materialist understanding of wealth history itself, which, of course, is the act, you know, the actually existing conditions, the stuff that people have to work with, the conditions that they find themselves in, but also, as we mentioned only a little while ago, the fact that computation is at its heart an industrial process. And once you demystify um, computation and demystify you know, the, the process of software, well, then you, you place it more properly within the overall a system of industrial and economic process within political economy um, rather than outside of it. Because the tech industry presents itself as being outside of political economy. Like they're, they're above it, they're, they're innovators, um, they're living in tomorrow. And we're seeing this now with, uh, for example, the push for, for Bitcoin and crypto. Um, many, when you uh, push back against these things, uh, many people will say, well, you're, you're afraid of the future. Um, they're just presenting this vague, nebulous idea of a future. And the only reason it seems futuristic is because it's, you know, because there's lots of complex uh, computational power involved. But then when you peel away or you, you pull, you open the curtains and what you see are racks of computers um, running, uh, consuming energy and doing cryptographic calculations, um, as I said, very industrial, very material, right? And so the more that you focus on that, uh, the more it makes sense to you, or rather the less likely you are to be um, fooled by the propaganda campaign, because you then return to the foundation, which is the materiality of computation. And then you, you look at the impact and the environmental impact, the energy impact, um, the impact on labor, uh, and as we mentioned a little while ago, the, the impact on our lives well, by the use of systems to make decisions that have an impact of, upon our prospects. Yeah, and it made me think of like, like I'm at least old enough, you know, my early 20s was the early 2000s, and I like we built our computers still, you know, like That's we didn't right. just have like a MacBook or whatever, like actually like bought the hard drive and like, well, my boyfriend at the time or whatever <laughs> built my computer for me. But I remember like putting it together and choosing the parts and that kind of thing. And I'm, and I'm thinking for people that are younger that might've been born in the early 2000s, this must really seem, first of all, like second nature, of course, they've grown up with it, but mm-hmm. also like, it's just like seamlessly part of life and maybe don't have that kind of view of this being a, mach- a machine in that way. You make a really good point because I think one of the reasons that I have the view that I do and why it comes naturally to me is because I've been in this field for uh, two decades. And I started my work like in the actual super cold data centers, you know, um, cutting my hands as I rack servers, you know, in racks and running cables and, and uh, working with actual engineers um, who built these systems and so forth. Um, so it's impossible for me, it really, I, for me to, to abstract it. Uh, however, if you are younger and you do not have that experience, and what you see is, you know, um, the Twitter app or whatever, and you don't see that, and you don't know that behind the Twitter app is data centers, you know, r- running a, a platform, running, you know, a massive scalable website. Um, I think it's possible for you to be led down some wrong paths. Um, and, or you, you don't have to be very young. You, you also can be a person who just doesn't have the experience of exactly what you described, a kit computer, putting it together, because 
when you did that, you had a sense of it's a machine. You know, the, no one could have told you, well, you know what, Vanessa, this is a magical box. You're like, well, it, it came from a store and I had to put it together. So <laughs> I, I don't know how much magic I have to actually build myself um, in the same way that, you know, if you had other kits, um, you know, and you put them together, you had a sense of the actual materiality of, of the thing. So um, uh, that's another reason why I feel like a special responsibility uh, to, to speak out about this, because I, I know that my concern is that uh, this is a fading understanding as, as uh, we get older and there's more people who have, who do not even working in the tech industry, who don't have this background um, and who don't have the ability to, to just visualize immediately what's actually happening behind the scenes. So I also feel like a special responsibility to, you know, while I'm able to, and I'm still bright eyed and bushy tailed to, um, you know, to, to, um, to build a legacy of, of critique. Yeah, it's really needed. People need to critique these things more. Um, and I feel like there's so many different ways I can go because there's so many different things that mm -hmm. I'm interested in hearing your point of view about. But mm -hmm. what do you think about this kind of Elon Musk saying we're going to Mars sort of thing? So, you know, th th there's, actually, there's actually possible to go pretty deep with that because there's a couple of layers with, with the whole Musk story. There's the, the business grift layer because an analysis of um, Musk's business dealings reveals um, several things, you know, that he didn't found Tesla, for example, you know, it was taken from Eberhard and I forget the name of the other co-founder who actually invented the Tesla Roadster, um, that the rockets that land themselves is the completion of work that was started in the 1990s by, I believe it was McDonnell Douglas, um, you know, various things like that. Um, Starlink uh, is you know, kind of a, a boondoggle of an idea um, because the idea is to, just to orbit 45,000 satellites but then replace 5% of them every year. I mean, just at a practical level, it's, it sounds like pure madness. But then the question is why, why, do, why are people so enthusiastic and why are so many men so enthusiastic about this? And I, I, this is the, the, the psychological aspect of this um, that I find curious um, or that I'm very curious about. My personal, my uh, theory, um, my idea, I should say, not to, to, to be too vainglorious about it. My, my idea based upon talking to some people is that we've lost an idea of, of a future. And so what Musk is doing and others like him, Bezos does this as well, um, is present a kind of uh, old fashioned future, you know, like uh, um, space colonization and robots and all these things. Um, and that fills the gap of the future that people feel that we've lost um, because climate change looms over all of us, even though we su suppress on a daily basis as we make our coffee or whatever, we suppress our knowledge of that. Um, uh, and so people feel a need for a future. And, and also, um, I think a lot of men in particular, this is just my idea, but a lot of men in particular, I think the idea of a heroic man doing these things, saving the world appeals to a certain mythological idea of what a man is supposed to be in, in Western society. Now at the practical level, things like going to Mars. Well, Mars is fine for robots, but for people, there are many, many, many problems, um, such as the fact that Mars is a radioactive wasteland and that you have to bring everything with you. And um, it's a very unforgiving environment. And, you know, you can, well, unforgiving is, is putting it mildly. Um, um, it's not for living things. Um, it is not a place for living things. And the idea that um, you know uh, humanity's task is to build uh, an environment on a planet like Mars shows not imagination as it's presented, but a failure of imagination, um, because it's an old science fiction dream from my God the 1940s or 1950s that's just carried on to the present day, maybe even the 19th century um, is carried on to the present day. But the practicalities uh, prevent that from actually happening. And, but the, the dream is still appealing because it's, it's less taxing, I think, to our mythological fixations than saying, what do we need to do to actually fix the earth? 
And to fix the earth means we have to deal with power. And to deal with power means that we might have to go hard on some people who, de who deserve that we go hard on them, um, like the hydrocarbon cartel. And who wants to think about that? You'd rather think that, oh, I'm going to go into this lovely spaceship and land on Mars and I'll be a pioneer and it'll all be very exciting. And yeah, so um, I think that that's, that's a big part of the Musk story is that he is a grifter who's taking advantage of, of, of these, these ideas that are afloat in our society. I mean, Vanessa, you know, what was it uh, last year sometime when Musk announced that he was in the process of building a humanoid robot, as it was called, and it was just a person in a spandex suit uh, dancing around. And I was struck by the fact that even that very obvious bit of nonsense did not break the spell of um, the people who are the most ardent fans, because for the spell to be broken, they then have to go down an entire chain of, of, uh, of spells to be broken, you know, to decouple. I mean, you, as a person who's a, um, a scholar of, of uh, Freud's work and Lacan's work, you understand this better than I do, but it's just this whole complex of belief that there has to be unraveled for them to, you know, to go, oh, well, Musk really is a grifter. Um, and so it's, it's, to me, it's actually quite sad because it's, it's people who desperately want and need to have a sense that there will be some kind of viable future, but they have found the wrong, the wrong target, uh, sadly, uh, for their hopes. Yeah, because there won't be if they, they keep it up in that direction. Right. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, Mars, uh, Mars is so, so inhospitable. It's also ironic that you would just fly right past the moon, uh, which you could conceivably build a little a little facility on it, which is only a couple of days away from Earth. <laughs> so if you wanted to do something like that, it's just to, to play play the game for a minute. If you wanted to do something like that, wouldn't you just build a little facility on the moon? <laughs> and say, oh, we, you know, uh, Susan broke her leg. Oh, don't worry. We can get a ship to you in two days. As opposed to, oh, you're on Mars? Oh, okay, good luck. Um, so even if from, a, as I say, a purely practical point of view, um, um, it's just an, an absurd idea. And so we have to, I think, ask ourselves, those of us who are skeptical, or I would say, just say, who know better, we have to ask ourselves, but why do so many people believe these things? Why are they so eager to believe? And I, I, to me, that's the more interesting question because I mean, Musk, I, I just know that he, you know, he's just a chiseler, but, um, but why are so many people eager to believe him? Um, why was P.T. Barnum right? I, I think, I guess is, is the key question. Totally. And that's why I know you love Isabel's book as well. That's why yes. Isabel Miller's book is so great because she yes. really tears apart these things psychoanalytically and yes. into philosophy. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's exactly the kind of thing that's needed, I think, to balance out, you know, my work of uh, dissecting the actual mechanics of it. But then because I understand that there's also like this, you know, the psychoanalytic aspect that has to be explored. Um, um, I, I was really, I'm very appreciative of, the, uh, of that work and, and your work and the work of others who are actually trying to, you know, to explore this, this aspect of it, because we, we, it's difficult to know how to help people um, who are so deep down a rabbit hole. I mean, how many videos are we going to see of Tesla's almost driving into people <laughs> in alleged full self-driving mode? Like the car is just going completely bonkers. It, it doesn't work, obviously. And it's not going to work, but um, and it's not going to work. And why do you for, want it to work? And you know? why would you even <laughs> want it to work? Just teach people to drive the car. Yeah. Or <laughs> let's just build some trains. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's astounding, right? Like trains the most, would be great for the United States. Yeah, it'd be like the most astounding astoundingly complicated so-called solution to, to solve problems. And, and I, I think that one of the reasons it, there's a, a, an economic reason, which is that, you know, if I'm able to, if I'm a company, I'm able to sort this, to sell you this remarkably complicated system. Well, guess what? I'm going to make a lot of money, especially if it doesn't work because under the contract, I just have to keep, keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. Um, but the simplest you have answer. to keep buying new cars or whatever. exactly or you know <laughs> to get it fixed or you know like tesla charging people you know tens of thousands to fix the problems that are caused by the fact that the systems don't work um but the simplest 
most human-centered solutions, of course, are not profitable, which is why they have to be public goods services as opposed to um, for-profit entities like rail and things like that. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm even more frustrated than usual lately because of what we also talked about on Twitter with, with this, like, I feel like at the beginning of the pandemic, we had such a chance to see, like, if everyone panics, which they we should be panicking yes. about climate crisis, for example, yeah. which yeah. COVID is a part of, right? That's things right. are going to keep happening. Um, we, it showed that we can, like, stop everything and, like, yes. do things in another way. That's and so right. I'm so disheartened that people are, like, rushing back to this kind of normal that got us here in the first place when we really need to kind of make a 180 and do things in a different way before it's too late. It's quite interesting. I, I mean, I guess we should have anticipated that this rush to quote unquote normality was going to happen because it's not in the interest of capital uh, writ large, you know, to, to do this kind of change in which, because um, I mean, note, for example, when we had uh, a definition of essential workers in, in the US, um, and the essential workers were defined not as, you know, like the people who are usually defined that way, such as stockbrokers or whoever, you know, is making a tremendous amount of money, but people who were delivering food and serving food and, and growing food and, and things like this, because of course it was back to the fundamentals, right? The people who kept the electricity flowing and the water flowing. Um, this was unavoidable because, you know, the, the, the material situation uh, reveal to everybody, well, you know, who actually is essential? But now what we're seeing is, I would say, a propaganda effort to undo that, 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 uh, that change in perspective so that we just rush back to the same thing. One of the things that was fascinated me on Twitter was when people started posting pictures from the Delta Sky Lounge or something, you know, like, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm back to, you know, flying for work and it's so good. And like, well, I won't comment on your personal feeling about that, but obviously that's a societal failure. If after all of this, um, the the victory state is, oh, I'm I'm back to flying a hundred times a year. I'm like, well, you shouldn't be back to flying a hundred times a year. Maybe you should fly no times a year or very 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 few times a year because we we cannot continue this. And ironically, uh, Vanessa, it's it's. The fact that the very technologies that people uh, celebrate that made remoting possible are the technologies that now they're saying, well, you know, it's, it's it can't be done. Like, well, you've been doing it for two years. Now, obviously, you know, being on Zoom all the time is taxing and tiring and weird, and we do need to be with people um, as 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 safely as we can or as best as we can. But um, it's probably better to be with your friends and your family than to be in an office. <laughs> for example, or maybe not an office as often as people, you know, were called upon to be in an office. It's different for obviously people who, who have professions uh, such as teaching and, and in which it's impo important to be, to interact with your students or, or other, other types of work in which it's, it's a different situation. But we probably could reduce, not probably, we can reduce the number of people commuting and, and, and doing and consuming energy and so forth. Um, I mean, we've shown that we can. Um, um, but, uh, but to do that means a restructuring of the system, um, in a way that, that, uh, capital is not, is not comfortable with because it, 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 um, it changes the order as it has been. Yeah, but we need to change that order. There's a long history in psychoanalysis of like not commenting on society, thinking psychoanalytically or politics, which I mm. think is really not been useful <laughs> uh, to say the least because I can't help but think of it that way it's like if you if you don't end up like addressing the symptom <laughs> there's going to be a bigger breakdown down the road you know you can't just put a band-aid on it and go back to what you're doing because you're going to end up in the same spot that you find yourself in now or worse you know we we desperately need the insights of uh, psychoanalytic the uh, theorists, I think, in this area. And I would like to see more application of the at work um, towards the tech industry. What does it mean when people, people are so worshipful of a guy on a stage standing in front of a giant screen talking about software? 
I mean, that's a moment that needs to be needs to be interrogated. If you were to take someone from the ancient world and say, oh, well, here are all these people gathered and here's this person and here's this thing, I think that they would interpret that probably correctly because it, with their non-modern perspective as, well, this is a, a, a moment of worship, right? I, I think people would, would correctly, I think an ancient Greek would probably correctly in, interpret that as either, or, or theater, like they, or they would see it either as a moment of worship or, or as theater, which is what it is, right? And it's kind of a combination of the two. Because the tech industry's entire, how do I put this? Their way of approaching um, uh, themselves and how they present themselves to us is as being outside of the bounds of the rest of the economy, of being special, of being um, the best of the best, uh, of having abilities that are beyond our understanding, of doing things that are like magic. Um, People like me who, who break that down technically and explain why technically uh, that is not true, or uh, if it is true, not as true or true in a different way than, than they present it. Uh, I think that um, we also need help from people who, who do work like yours and, and like uh, Dr. Millard, because um, uh, there's much more going on than just, uh, than obviously just the technical aspect of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I absolutely believe that everyone that can work from home should work from home because like you said, it reduces commuting and that helps the environment and we need to do that. Like I've moved, we, me and my husband decided about this time last year, okay, a year of this, it's going to continue this way. So we, we left the city and moved to the country and mm -hmm. I do all of my work remotely. I see clients remotely and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's been great. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's the way it needs to be uh, Yeah, more, more often. Yeah. And then you're, the socializing with other humans, I, I think that should be reserved for, you know, for, for loved ones, um, you know, cause yeah, you, you absolutely do need to still do that, but yeah, I think it definitely should be reserved for loved ones and, and, and not for you say, you know, corporate situations, um, which is what we're, we've been compelled to do. Um, uh, in order to earn our livings, in order to, to have a life, right? So when I was in the States, because uh, I moved to the Netherlands with my wife, um, there were times as a consultant when I had uh, a two hour commute one way. So like a round trip, four hour commute. And I was really only one jackknife truck away on a highway from having a six or seven hour commute. It absolutely was known to happen. Um, one time I was stuck on the road for 15 hours because there was um, multiple accidents on the road. And then I was expected um, to get up the next morning um, and do that all over again. Mm -hmm. Obviously this is madness, right? And, um, and so that, which gets me to another point, which is the use of technology, of the technologies that we do have. If they were tailored to human use, if they were tailored to, to what we actually need, then there's really some interesting things we could accomplish um, but right now they're tailored to the needs of the corporations that own them. Um, so machine learning, for example, we have a desperate need to analyze the Earth's atmosphere. We have a desperate need to analyze the effects of climate change locally, um, because of course there's a difference between climate and weather, as we know. What if this computational power was opened up to be um, to to people to be used to 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 determine what their local situation was? Uh, rather than it being you know, the exclusive um, uh, territory of major corporations, for example, or of militaries. So there's a, an insane amount of capability that is locked away behind the wall of profit. And so I'm not negative on technology, which is what some people accuse me of being. I am an advocate for the democratic use and democratic control of technology. One of my uh, one of the things that I look back to is the CyberSyn project that was in Chile in the 1970s, which was an early example of trying to use uh, computer technology to help um, governments make smart choices, help citizens make smart choices. It was a very iterative process. And I've begun studying um, the classic works of cybernetics, um, which is quite exciting because I didn't realize that the early cyberneticians like understood this in the 1940s and 50s, that this is that the, the work of complex systems and how to tailor, how to 
how to, how would I put this? It's not command and control, but adapting to, to the environment. It's quite exciting because it's a vision for what computation could be um, liberated from the bounds of capitalism. Yeah, that's amazing. No, and I think of that too, like how did how does it coincide at this moment? Because I'm I'm getting to where I can't have my denial mechanism work so well in the morning when I make my coffee. I'm mm -hmm. like, maybe my podcast should only be about technology and the environment. Like, mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what we need to mm -hmm. be talking about all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And now I completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're right. And, and uh, particularly since there, so you, you, I'm sure you recall that there was a moment in the history of um, Britain, when uh, the commons, the common lands were um, denied to, well, to the people. The, the enclosing of the commons, of course, is I guess the phrase that's used to describe that. Um, because you know, prior to, to uh, the rise of capitalism, um, it was possible for people to have a common area for farming um, and for cultivating land held uh, in common. And I think in the, under the feudal system, of course, it was understood that one of a noble's um, responsibilities was to provide this land and to not interfere with it. This is not to say that the feudal system um, was good or perfect, but one of the things that happened during the transition to, to capitalism was the enclosing of these lands and then the placing of them within private hands um, so that then people had to use their wage labor to, to be able to farm. And they were doing so for other people, um, not for themselves, not, not to grow what they needed for their family. Um, I feel the same way about computation. There was a moment when I was quite young when it felt as if uh, computation was an opportunity for humanity. Um, and then as the years have rolled by, it became clear to me that there was an enclosing of this technological common, so to speak. Now, it's kind of a poison chalice in some ways because we know that the history of computation is bound up with, mil with military objectives. But even so, I think there was um, uh, a moment when it at least seemed as if um, the technology that we use was going to be deployed for people in common. Um, but it's quite clear that that's not the case now, that the social media platforms that we depend upon, for example, you know, they're not ours. You know, we, we, we use them because it's good to communicate. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have met you without them. But wouldn't it be better if, if it was a public utility um, without any need to advertise or push advertisement to it? It's just a means of, of uh, communication. Um, the, the use of the technology stack to, to help a society be knit together in a different way. Um, um, and so that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm advocating for. That's what I'm advocating for is, is and what I'm actually kind of fighting for is the building of that common tech stack, um, not uh, the trashing of the machines, but the liberation of the potential of the machines uh, for all of us, uh, for human need rather than for uh, profit. No, that's beautiful. And that's exactly what I was going to say that, that I was thinking that I had forgotten was that we have this moment while there is a crisis environmentally that we all can communicate yeah. and kind of have this opportunity to be able to work together in this way and also to be aware of what's going on with all the different societies around the world in a way that we haven't been able to before. Right. We're not just relying on news to tell us what's going on, but we can have people saying for themselves, no, this is what's going on in Palestine. This is what's going in Ukraine. You know, people can talk for themselves instead of just relying on the media. So we have this like amazing opportunity in that way to communicate with one another. Yes, absolutely. And the problem, and, and that of course is a good thing, but the problem is that it is mediated and controlled by entities, organizations that do not have our best interests at heart. Um, someone said to me once that when you're on social media, you should always remember that you are within enemy territory, um, you know, because the territory, the terrain has been laid out by those who do, and uh, who do not have your, your best interest at heart. Now, that does not mean that every tech worker within, you know, Twitter or whatever is like some evil person. But the purpose of the platform is not to further, you know, human development. 
Um, it's a means of doing advertising and things like that. The communication that we can do is a, um, an emergent property, but it's something that's also exploited. And, and so, again, this is why it's important to have to advocate for systems that do not have that, that liability that are not held back by, um, by you know, the, the desire or the need to advertise something to you. Um, how many times, for example, do you have to click on, I don't like this ad on Twitter, <laughs> like, and then it comes back and so forth and so on. And let us not even speak of Facebook or Meta or whatever you want to call it. I mean, we all know that that's just the worst, right? So, and yeah, TikTok, I mean, all these things, I mean, there, there's potential in all of them. And because human beings are very creative and route around damage, often people are actually finding that, but through algorithmic manipulation, we also know that people are being encouraged towards things that lead them down dark paths. If there was no algorithm recommending anything to you, would, would people have the same path from normal curiosity about a topic to Nazi sympathies? I mean, we, we don't know, but I, somehow I doubt it. If, it. if it was just a platform, if these platforms, especially Facebook, if it was just something that you could just use to talk to your friends and family, and meet new people on your own terms, I, I suspect there'd be far less of, of that sort of thing because there'd be no mechanism pushing you in a certain direction in order to keep keep you glued in order to to, to serve you up to, to advertisers. Are there ideas of ways that we can move towards this more kind of public use of the platforms? The, you know, every time I say this, people, I've actually, I actually wrote about this a little while ago um, when I, I wrote an essay called um, uh, Public Cloud as a, a Public Good, in which I, I think I laid out, it's on, on, my, on my blog, in which I, I lay out an idea for how this can be achieved. Um, but there are others, you know, who actually have, certainly have ideas. Um, I know that here in Europe, there are people who have been trying to build, um, you know, a, a cloud platforms, um, or what I should say, um, utility computing to be specific and grounded utility computing platforms that are um, um, that are not tied to you know to these corporate majors that would be the foundation that would be the material foundation would be actually building computation um, you know a, a more radical uh, approach would be to you know to nationalize say these platforms but as we know that would be a massive political struggle um, of which I'm certainly not against but um, I, I don't know how one would even start that and I don't know um, what the outcome would be, but the construction of an alternative um, that would be publicly owned and publicly managed and democratically controlled, I think would be the, the starting point. Uh, um, I mean, there are platforms like Mastodon, for example, that, that are you know, designed to be something like this, you know, like not fixated on, uh, on profit. Um, so there are, there are people actually doing visions. Great. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to be sure to mention before we wrap up? I, the one thing I wanted to, I would say is when, um, when your listeners um, read a news story about something, um, a technology story that purports uh, that a company has accomplished something that seems incredible, particularly in the area of so-called artificial intelligence and so forth, be skeptical. Um, be skeptical and ask yourself, well, is it possible? Um, can it be achieved as they describe um, who benefits from the deployment of this technology and why are they promoting it? And if you keep those, those points foremost in your mind, I think that you have a good starting point, a good um, beginning tool set for sort of piecing apart um, uh, the claims that, that are made by the tech industry. Yeah, and I would say if they want to look more into it, they should go to your blog and see what okay. you said about it. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dwayne Monroe. For more, be sure to f check out his website and blog, monroelab.net. And follow him at Twitter at Cloud Quistador. And stay tuned for his book, 
Attack Mannequins AI as Propaganda. As always, you can also follow me at Instagram and Twitter at Rawson underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And I have recently joined TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. And now here's a track called A Poem for the Poet, which was from a compilation created for Genesis Briar Peorage called Not in My Future. You can find the compilation on Bandcamp at contemporaryartists.bandcamp.com. And again, links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So now, a poem for the poet. Enjoy. and glue, your sparkling supernova express still shines somewhere, and here, and now, in the morning after the night, I fall in love with the light. First it was, then it knew it was, and that was 